Hello, Habit Mechanics. It's Dr. John Finn here. I hope you're having a fantastic week so far. Welcome to a shorter episode of the Habit Mechanic podcast. Remember, you can listen to live episodes of the Habit Mechanic podcast inside the Habit Mechanic University app, where you can ask us questions live and we will answer you during the live streamed podcast. Inside the app, you can also access your Habit Mechanic Toolkit. You can also watch our live masterclasses and join our live Change Challenge coaching sessions. You can download the app for free. So we know that if you want to build new habits, if you want to move from knowing to doing to habit, there are nine factors that drive your habits. And they're always on. These factors are always on. They're on right now in your life. It's just that they're invisible to you. So your mindset is on. You believe what you believe. You know, and broadly, you can think of mindset on a continuum. One end is, I believe that I can grow and I can get better and I can improve. That's a habit mechanic mindset. The other end of the continuum is what we might call the, the eight brain mindset, which is, no, I'm good at what I'm good at my genes dictate that and if I'm not good at something there's no way I want to get any better at it uh, I'm not going to go there and you can actually your organization you, you can plot everyone your organization across that continuum um, you can absolutely move people up and down the continuum as well and I would argue that if you keep trying things to improve your happiness, your performance, your leadership, and you fail because those things you're trying are not actually based on cutting-edge insights about how your brain works, you're going to be developing more of an eight brain, more of a fixed mindset. If you try things that are based on good science, if you use, for example, habit metrics, um, our habit metric tools, and our habit mechanic, habit building tools, you're going to actually improve and get results. And that's what we see in the app, for example, in real time every single day. And that's going to help you to develop more of a habit mechanic mindset, a belief that you can do better. So if we want to do better, if we want to learn, if we want to grow, we have to have that mindset. The second factor then is what you call brain state optimization, John. If we want to build new habits to give ourselves the best chance, We've got to be practicing those new behaviours, those new ways of thinking and doing when our brain is has got plenty of charge in it. So we think of the brain as a bit like a battery. So if we can, we want to design our day so that we're in high charge brain states when we, first of all, um, start to practice this new way of thinking and doing to start building a new habit. That's why, for example... We encourage people to do the tea plan first thing in the morning um, because hopefully they've had a restful night's sleep and therefore they've got enough um, brain charge to help them to do that. The tea plan is the first habit mechanic tool that we introduce. Chapter one of the book. It's also you'll see people in the habit mechanic university out there posting their tea plans every day. So, yeah, so that's brain states. It's about getting the right neurotransmitters into your brain. And the first thing I do every day is I go for a run. 
and I go for a run so that I can, when I get to my desk to do my focused, clever work, I'm at the right brain state. I've got the right neurotransmitters in, in my brain. I've got some dopamine. I've got some neuroadrenaline. I've got some BDNF so that I've got the best chance of, of doing my my um, most challenging work. Moving on then through the factors, we'll move to number three. Um, the idea of recognising that you can change yourself, but but these changes shouldn't be massive. They shouldn't be gargantuan. It shouldn't be a, a massive step taken at one time. Yeah, so this is the tiny factor. And um, tiny factors is key as part of a systematic approach to changing your behaviour. But just making things tiny by itself doesn't explain everything about how we get good at building better habits. We've, also, we've already said we need to have the right mindset and we need to get our brain in the right place. But then the tiny factors are important to pay attention to. So we have the tiny empower and action plan, the T plan, very deliberate. We focus in the way we structure the habit mechanic book, the app, it's all designed to break things into tiny little steps um, because our brain's number one operating rule is to save energy. So our brain doesn't like doing difficult things. So one way to get around that is to ask, is to make the things that we're asking our brain to do as tiny as possible. Like the tea plan, just spending two minutes a day doing that simple reflection and planning tool that's, that is science, that is science backed. And it's taken quite a long time to put something so simple together, but it's, um, it's deliberately tiny. If I want to build up to doing 50 press-ups every morning I'm gonna, and I don't currently do any and I haven't done any for a while, I'm not going to start with 50 press-ups. I'm going to start with one press-up. And then tomorrow I might do one or I might do two. And then I'll build up this week and maybe by the end of the week I'm doing five every morning. Great, great start, fantastic. I'm making progress. And that, that's the other key is that I would argue that the, the fundamental thing that human beings are subconsciously interested in is feeling like they have control of their lives. I think that's the most important thing for us. And we measure that in a few ways. We measure that with how we feel. We measure that with how what we think other people think of us. But that's why progress is so key, is because it it indicates to us that we're in control, that when we put efforts into something, we get a result. We know, for example, that there's, there's big compelling sets of data showing that the biggest cause of burnout in the workplace isn't having too much stuff to do. It's the feeling that nothing I do pays off, that nothing I do moves me forward, that nothing I do has a positive impact. So it's that feeling of I'm stagnant or I'm going backwards. So by making things tiny, it allows us to quickly get some change momentum, is what I would call it. The next factor then, number four, personal motivation. You, you tell people to think about a meaningful reason or a desire that what why they want to change. The real driver as to why anyone does what they do, do is the why. If you can't do something, your why isn't strong enough. 
to which I say, well, why is it important? But it's only one of nine factors. So I might have all the motivation in the world to want to do something, but if my brain's not working well and I haven't designed that thing that I want to do into manageable chunks, then, you know, the why is going to fail me eventually. Or if I can't activate the other nine factors, the other, the other eight factors, the why will fail. But yeah, why is important because our brain is designed for the next 10 minutes. Our brain's a survival organ. It's interested in the next 10 minutes. Of course, to make sustainable improvements to our habits, build, get rid of destroy destructive habits and build new super habits, we need to do things beyond the next 10 minutes. We need to prioritize our feelings beyond the next 10 minutes. So being able to connect what we want to practice today and tomorrow and the rest of the week and so on becomes easier if we can connect it to our bigger goals. And this is why we created over many, many iterations and many, many years, the FAM story iceberg, which is the future ambitious, meaningful story iceberg. So the iceberg is a metaphor. The top of the iceberg is the distant future. The bottom of the iceberg is today. So the FAM story iceberg gives you a really quick, powerful way to connect your long-term distant goals with your habits today and the habits that you're trying to work on. So that's that's fully explained, and we show you how to do that in Chapter 16 of the book. Yeah, and then but, worthwhile just pointing out, John, you work with people and in the book. This is actually, this is this becomes a diagram, if you like, that people can use and take with them somewhere. Yes, it's a visual reference point. Um, so the metaphor is the iceberg. Um, and you'll be able to do it in the app as well soon, actually. You'll be able to. I was showing someone that the other day, which is quite exciting. So you can store that. But the a quick way to make something more a goal more meaningful is to ask yourself why times five. So you might say, okay, well, my goal... Um, in the next 12 months is to get a promotion at work. Why do you want to do that? Well, I want to buy a house in a different part of town. Why do you want to do that? Well, that that part of town has the best school district. Why is that important? Because I want to give my kids the, the chance of going to the best school. Well, why is that important? Because I want to be a great parent. I don't want to look back and, and regret not giving my kids the best chance. So what do you need to do in order to give yourself the chance of getting a promotion at work in the next year? Well, every day I need to create a willpower story. So all of a sudden creating a willpower story every day is much more meaningful because it's not about just getting the promotion. It's about being a great parent. So that's the power of knowing how to properly set what we call intelligent goals. Goals are powerful tools, but you can set goals that are really well, I, I would argue quite damaging to the to you being successful, or you can set goals that are really intelligent and really supercharge your success. And we would, you know, talking about um, making habits of things, I would really encourage people to, so all, all the tools in the book are broken down into daily tools, weekly tools, and monthly tools or bi-monthly tools. So the fam story is a, is a monthly bi-monthly tool. And we actually have a we have a business version of that in the book as well. 
um, which is in chapter 32, the cultural architect chapter. It's a very similar idea, but you can use it for your business. So yeah, personal motivation is key. Um, and, and remember, just to reinforce, these factors I'm talking about are on all the time. They're always on at an individual level, at a team level, at an organizational level. They're driving individually, they're driving your personal habits. At a team level, they're driving your team's level, uh, your team's habits. At an organizational level, they're driving your people's habits. In other words, your culture. Your culture is your people's habits. Habits run your business. Factors five and six, I think we can tackle them perhaps together. Um, personal knowledge and skills is factor five. Um, you, you need to know new things. And community knowledge and skills, people around you might know new things which are helpful. Yeah, so we can give a couple of examples here. Yeah, so absolutely, it's knowledge, it's knowing, to skill, to habit or knowing, doing, which is doing is putting the skill into action to habit. That's the continuum. It's not saying that knowing stuff, we don't say knowing stuff isn't important or that skills are not important. In our book, from the word go, we start to map out that sequence. What we're saying is that the way that we've traditionally been taught to help people often doesn't get past giving them more knowledge. Sometimes we give them a few more skills, particularly in you know sports psychology, which is my background is really strong in that aspect of it but it stops then of actually helping them to build new habits. So just to give a simple example, you might have all the motivation. might be absolutely aligned with your why, but without new knowledge and skills, you won't be able to do it. That's why you have driving lessons. You might have all the motivation in the world to want to get better at managing stress, but often without new knowledge and skills, you don't know how to do it. That's why I wrote The Habit Mechanic read chapter 22 it gives you the knowledge and the skills to be able to get better at managing stress but we also go that step further and show you how to build that into a habit and yeah closely connected to personal knowledge and skills as you as you say andrew is community knowledge and skills so it's really helpful when we want to learn new things if people around us already know how to do it so in that driving example if i want to learn how to drive it's really helpful if my parents know how to do it because they can take me for free driving lessons at the weekend in the supermarket car park before they used to open on the the weekend on Sunday, so you can probably still get there in after four o'clock or something. Um, equally, if I want to get better at managing stress, it's really helpful if people around me know how to do it. And this is what's fantastic, and this is why we've created the habit mechanic language, which is chapter. Um, three of the book and we're going to do an entire podcast about that but one of the other great things i love about the Habit mechanic community app is that we've got people in there saying i'm struggling with this and then someone else jumps in and says oh i i've, I've been using this tool or i've tried this so we've got the community knowledge and skills in the app are actually supercharging individuals abilities to start uh, building and securing long-lasting new behaviours. So we're seeing that in real time in the Habit Mechanic University app. And it's no coincidence that we've structured the app and the book, which work together as we have done, because we've done it to try to activate as many of the nine action factors as we possibly can to give, to create that ecosystem around you 
around your team, around your organisation, that gives you the best chance of actually building new habits. If you want to fulfil your potential or help other people fulfil their potential so you can feel great and get the rewards and respect you deserve, then I want to give you a free physical copy of my new best-selling book because you deserve to know the truth. The most important things for fulfilling your potential are not tips, tricks, hacks, therapy, coaching, meditation, breathwork, goal setting, journaling or finding your why. I know it sounds irrational because we're so used to hearing about using these things to help us fulfill our potential. But these approaches are outdated and ineffective and they are based on a big lie. To find out more and get your free physical copy of Dr. John Finn's best-selling book, The Habit Mechanic, go to tougherminds.co.uk. Okay, uh, we'll move on then, John, to the seventh factor, social influence. You you talk about the strong influence uh, that, that can be we can have we that, that people can have on us with their own behavior and especially if we look up to them and respect them yeah so if we think about the driving example again we've got um uh, someone who wants to learn to be a great driver but their father doesn't think the speed limit's a valid idea or their mother doesn't believe in car insurance they're not great role models for you learning to become a great driver so we model and copy we have know a part of our brain that's wired it's actually hardwired into the parts of our brain that tells us we are thirsty and we are hungry it's like a social uh, thermometer it tells us how how we think other people are perceiving us and thinking about us which is the p in the eight brain essentially so we are highly wired to want to fit in and want to impress important people in our lives we're seeing great examples of this at the moment in the England cricket team with Ben Stokes. Ben Stokes, essentially, he, he said in a press conference, if you want to get into this England cricket team, this is the style you're going to need to play in, which is a really aggressive attacking uh, batting style. He's going out there and modelling that behaviour every time he takes the field. He's probably doing it excessively. Um, he's probably giving his, his wicket away some commentators would say, you know, a bit too easily at times, but what he's what he's doing is he's making a point is I want you to be super aggressive when you're batting and I'm going to lead from the front and model that behaviour. You know, when we look at how do we, how how to become a better leader, so our leadership model has four components, the role model, the action communicator, the cultural architect and the SWAT coach. When we're thinking about people being in traditionals or leadership training, it's often about what can we, what can we, what can we be doing to help uh, to get others to do what we want them to do? And often the blind spot is, well, it's you, you embody those behaviors yourself. You model the behaviors that you want others to do is the first thing that you can do. So if you want others to become habit mechanics, first of all, you need to become a habit mechanic. Another example I like is is um is James Dyson. Um the, who, the, the, the inventor of the Dyson vacuum. Inventor of the Dyson vacuum. Um 
now worth 26 billion. <laughs> um, seriously successful uh, entrepreneur who has created some you know phenomenal products and they continue to do so. But at the center of his business is failing. So if people know what Dyson is, they also often know that he fit that to create this iconic vacuum cleaner, he failed over over 5,000 times and there's a number they put on that, an exact number. And he's saying to his engineering team, in order to get good, don't worry about failing. It's essential for getting good. And I, I'm, I'm failing all the time. You know, it's important for me to, to reinforce for the habit mechanic community that I'm not perfect. I'm not nailing this all the time. I'm failing. I'm making mistakes. I'm learning and I continue to learn. You know, my habit mechanic intelligence is growing all the time because I make mistakes and I, and I learn from setbacks. Two factors left to discuss then. Uh, number eight, rewards and penalties. And, and you highlight how these can uh, encourage or discourage behaviour. Yeah, so again, these are always on. In the driving example, we get rewarded for driving well. If we pass our test, we get our licence. We continue to drive well, we get to keep our licence. Our car insurance goes down. If we drive poorly, there's a penalty system. You might not get your driving license in the first instance. If you do and you drive poorly, you get points on your license, you get um, monetary fines, your car insurance goes up, eventually you lose a license. So there are, these, there are these reward and penalty systems around us all the time. They're quite complex. I go into quite a, a bit of detail in the book. We actually have um, our own system that we use with our clients, which is, which is, called, the, which is called the habit power um, process and it breaks these non-action factors down into about 250 tactics and we maybe have about 30 plus reward and penalty tactics that we use to help clients um, to create these systems in their organizations and for themselves but we can broadly break down reward and penalty systems into three core areas uh, intrinsic rewards and penalties so if I do this, I feel better or I feel worse. Extrinsic. So if I do this, I get something tangible for it or I don't. And then a social reward. So if I do this, I'm I'm better thought of by the people around me. So it increases my social status, essentially. And we know that you know certain reward and penalty systems are more um, interesting to humans than others. So we know that variable variable rewards are very um, seductive, which variable rewards run the gambling industry, which is becoming a huge problem, you know, gambling addiction, um, people developing that destructive habit. It's run by variable rewards. Variable rewards are just, um, you don't know what you're going to get. Sometimes you, you win, sometimes you lose. That, of course, was uh, driven by um, Skinner's research on pigeons, where he observed, so he had, he had pigeons um, with feeding tubes, and essentially set up some different experimental conditions. So if a pigeon pressed the button, the some food came out. It always came out. So what did what happened? Did did the pigeon keep persisting? Did it get bored after a while? What happened in that condition? He had another condition where where the pigeon pressed the button, nothing happened. No food ever came out. And they had a middle condition where when the pigeon pressed the button, sometimes food came out. Sometimes it didn't come out. 
and essentially the pigeons got almost addicted to pressing the button. And that's how we first started to understand the power of variable rewards. Um, I would argue that that's about controlling our environment. Um, but that's probably for another podcast. But yeah, so reward penalty systems are very complex in one, one sense, but they're, they're also quite simple in another sense. Okay. Um, we'll come on to the ninth and final factor then, external triggers. Uh, and you highlight that setting up these triggers is a key way to to really start to cement helpful habits. Yeah, so we're being triggered all the time. Um, probably the most powerful trigger that's ever been designed is the smartphone. It's designed to remind you to use it to the extent now that sometimes you think you've got um, a mess. If you've got your phone in your pocket, sometimes you think it's vibrated. You get a phantom vibration because it's just a twinge in your leg and you've been now conditioned to associate that twinge with a message on your phone. So the reason that um, smartphones have been so successful is because they're so good at triggering you what to do, at reminding you to check them, in other words. And they're loaded with reward and penalty systems. They're like reward. They're like variable reward uh, systems. When you get that little red button, that little red um, notification on your phone, that isn't a coincidence. That's that color is very deliberately designed. We've been conditioned to associate red with danger, so it gets our attention. So you increasingly see that little red dot in your browser on your phone. Also on your phone, if someone's typing a reply to you, it starts to uh, make you aware of that. Now you get a little dot, 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 dot. That's a trigger. It's a variable reward trigger. It's saying something's coming, something's coming, and your brain's saying, will it be good? Will it be bad? What's going to come? Um, releases a little bit of dopamine response in your brain, which is an anticipatory system, not a reward system, like we've been led to believe. We get dopamine in anticipation of a reward. 